Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. The following episode is brought to you by SRO Motorsports America and their partners at AWS, CrowdStrike, Fanatec, Pirelli, and the Skip Barber Racing School. Be sure to follow all the racing action by visiting www.sro-motorsports.com or take a shortcut to gtamerica.us. And be sure to follow them on social at GT underscore America on Twitter and Instagram at SRO GT America on Facebook and catch live coverage of the races on their YouTube channel at GT World. With a career in motorsports that spans everything from working for a major auto manufacturer to time behind the wheel of a race car to finally team ownership, Jim Jordan brings a wealth of experience to his role as the SRO Motorsports GT America Touring Car Series Director. And in this week's episode of Break Fix, Jim explains his role and how his previous experiences have shaped his outlook as he helps to guide SRO into the latest golden age of sports car racing. So please join us in welcoming Jim Jordan to Break Fix. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here. So like every Break Fix episode, we love to get into the details around people's origin stories, because let's face it, everyone has a story. So let's talk about Jim, the petrol head. How did you get into cars, into motorsports? Do you come from a racing family? I don't come from a family that raced, although I will say uh, first race I ever went to is the Trenton Speedway in Trenton, New Jersey, which was the old New Jersey fairground. So I'm showing my advanced age now where I saw Mario Andretti in the Dean Van Line special win the Trenton 150. My dad liked racing. So my dad was a racing fan. So he took my brother and I to Trenton Speedway, took my eldest sister to Trenton Speedway while it still existed. He was a fan of the Trans Am series during its huge heyday. He owned a 65 Mustang GT convertible, and that was his, you know, the car he loved. And uh, so I went to first road races, Watkins Glen, and it was a combination SCCA national Trans Am race and saw... Mark Donahue went in a Penske Camaro. So, you know, just a great time Trans Am racing and just kind of became a huge fan. And, you know, as a kid, there's pictures of me in a Halloween costume that my mom made as a race driver with the traditional Goodyear stripes on the side. So been a fan for a long time and been very fortunate to have turned into a career that kept me and my family going for a very long time. So I hear rumor that in your early days of racing and getting into motorsports, some of the grassroots racing that you did, that you raced a Pinto? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. My first real race, I had done some SCCA driver schools, and I had a clapped out MGB e-production car that I was trying to get my license with and met a guy named Rich Grisano. So Rich Grisano, if you're still around, hey, buddy, thanks. <laughs> you put me on a nice path. And Rich Grisano had a Ford Pinto that was built for the IMSA RS series, which, again, most people now have no idea what the heck it was. But it was a, a racing series ancestry very close to what I'm doing now. 
where you had small compact sedans racing around. So I raced a Ford Pinto in a three hour, I think it was BF Goodrich radio challenge at that point, but IMSA race. And that was the first race I ever did. And yes, it was Ford Pinto race, Ford Pinto for several years. Again, met people such as Alan Marsh, who uh, the huge guy early in my career, because he gave me a job at his gas station, <laughs> let me pump gas at, at night, work on my cars a little bit, paid my, my early racing career. Again, my family didn't put money to my racing, whatever I did, I had to do it myself. So working at a gas station at Fort Pinto was about all I could afford. I completely sympathize with racing on a budget when the budget is yours. It's very, very challenging. So I wonder while you were racing the Pinto, were you racing against Lynn St. James in her Pinto? Actually, no, because she was running a showroom stock Pinto and I'm good friends with Lynn. So we did share a few weekends at the same track, but never in the same class. And it wasn't until just a few years ago. And it's a program that uh, John Doonan, who's now head of IMSA, Dean Case, who works with us at the SRO and myself put together. Uh, we put together a deal at the 25-hour longest, whatever NASA calls her 25-hour race at Thunder Hill. We just thought it'd be fun to have 25 drivers. So every driver drove one hour. And Lynn St. James and I both drove our hour. I teased her just a couple of weeks ago when I had dinner with her that we actually co-drove a race, Lynn. Uh, <laughs> we were hours apart in our stints, but and some great people came out of racing Pinos because the Pinot was a, uh, was a very competitive car in that type of series back in the day. It's sadly become a joke now, but Pinot is just a good handling car, you know, in some ways like a Miata. No horsepower, so you had to keep cornering speed. So it's, it was a good car to learn on. Like the American GTI. <laughs> yeah, well, no, GTR is far better than a Pinot, but yes, when it comes to momentum and not a whole lot of power, but that's honestly, in my opinion, how you learn how to drive. And that's one of the reasons and that so many good drivers come out of classes like, you know, currently like Spec Miata, because you have to maintain min. It's all about min speed. As long as you go as fast as possible with the corners, the straights take care of themselves. It's just that, you know, the highest possible minimum speed of any corner is that's why a driver like Pat Long is so good because his min speed's higher than virtually anybody else. We're going to transition a little bit. And we interviewed Dean Case a while back, and he spoke about his time on the design team at Mazda. And we came to find out that you were also involved with Mazda for many years. Do you want to go ahead and expand on that? It was Mazda North America, although it had a couple of different names when I was there as Mazda went through uh, three organizations and the rest. But really fortunate to work for Mazda for 26 years. Had some really good bosses during that time frame that taught me a heck of a lot about the car business. While that whole time was going on, I was still involved with the racing, at least at one level or another, generally club level stuff, but occasionally helping other people on some pro stuff. But start out with Monston technical training. I responded to a classified ad, want to ad in the uh, LA Times, and it was for Mazda Corporate that they wanted someone who had teaching experience and understood the rotary engine. A couple of years previously, I'd been a special ed teacher. That's kind of what I did right out of college. My dream of being a professional race car driver took over, and I had my own shop for a while, and we specialized on Mazda rotary stuff. Like uh, lots of young, enthusiastic people, the shop couldn't pay the bills. I met a woman I wanted to marry. 
So all of a sudden, well, I better get a real job. And, and, and so just applied for a job at Mazda. My resume, I typed it up and just mailed it with a really good cover letter. I'm a decent writer, so great cover letter. The funny thing about that was I looked at everything after I sent it and realized that I forgot to put my phone number on my resume because I wasn't really planning on you know, sending a resume, but here's this job that describes me. So I said, ah, there's no way I'm ever going to get it. Two days later, there's a letter from Mazda saying, oh, Mr. Jordan, we're quite interested in you. We forgot to give your phone number. And I'm thinking, well, you know, this had to be fate because in most people's world, that would have been instant disqualification. I will say, though, that I got the grammar right and I must have spelled everything correctly. <laughs> so I worked their technical training. I went out to the field because in general at that era, I don't know what it's like now, but if you're going to go in any kind of executive position, they want you to have some field experience. And when we say field experience, we're talking about going out to dealers and, and interfacing with the customers directly. Two types of customers. One customer is a dealer, of course. The other customer is uh, the end user, the person that buys the car. So I had that role as a district service manager, which meant that I would be yelled at by customers who weren't satisfied. And that's a skill set I take to this day of not getting too upset when people yell at me, because if you're in a position of responsibility in any sort of job, people are going to yell at you. So I used that quite effectively just a few weeks ago at an SRO race, but also just how to uh, motivate people, uh, how to fight for shelf space. And honestly, that fighting for shelf space at that time, Mazda was a smaller brand, still not a big brand, but a smaller brand where we shared dealerships with other brands. So you're constantly fighting for the attention of the dealer and then the attention of the customer. So worked my way through all the field jobs possible, did parts, parts service, then ended up in sales was a district sales manager in both Northern California and Southern California, then moved into the corporate environment. But for about the last eight or 10 years, motorsports marketing was my responsibility. So I worked in the corporate marketing department. I basically had sponsorships, special events, placements in movies, some real fun stuff there. But motorsports was my passion. And so I was in just a wonderful position with some really good people too, and we just accomplished really great stuff. And Dean was absolutely part of that. By that time, uh, he came back in after we were a little bit on a roll, but we had so few people, but we had engaged top management, our CEO and a senior vice president named Robert Davis. They believed in what we did. They supported what we did. As long as we can make an argument and show how it would help the company, they let us do just amazing things. And I still look back on that. The one story I'll tell, and, and it's one of my favorite stories, it was the 24 Hours of Daytona, I think it was 2008 or 2009. Savant Tremblay in a, uh, a three-rotor RX-8 won the race. So we ended up with the trophy, and it was uh, John Doonan, again, uh, head of IMSA, myself, head of TC America over at the SRO, Dean Case, who works for us in the SRO, and a guy named Steve Sanders, who's now retired. That was Mazda Motorsports. There were basically just four of us. And we're driving out of the paddock at Daytona. And we see all these Porsche trucks. It's just like trailer after trailer after trailer, which was Porsche parts, Porsche engineering. We looked at the entry list. Every good Porsche driver in Germany had been cleared out and was over at Daytona to run. And we just started laughing hysterically with how crazy was it that we were driving out with the trophy. And again, it's fun for me to just see... Uh, 
the success that John Doonan's had. It's so much fun to be working with Dean Case again. Steve Sanders, I don't talk to enough, but talk to him a little bit now and then. Robert Davis, who I just mentioned, he's now also working for the SRO. He's now one of our race stewards. Just amazing quality people. Timing was right that we got a lot of a lot of the right people at the right place at the right time. Again, you look at all the things we accomplished with the Mazda Road to Indy, winning championships in Grand Am, which is now sort of what IMS has become. Winning races, the MX-5 Cup, the Mazda Motorsports Ladder, all that stuff that just a small group of really motivated people sharing a vision and some just amazing executives. Jim O'Sullivan, I miss you, man. Robert Davis, too. They just help us make something very special that I'm very proud of. So there's a question I asked Dean that I'm going to ask you because I'm going to find the answer one of these days. You're talking about your time at Mazda. Are you responsible for Zoom Zoom? <laughs> no, no. But I do know the story, though. Would you like the story? Absolutely. We'd love it, please. Yeah. So I was in the marketing department. So I do have some insight there. Mazda was going for a pitch. You know, we want a new ad agency. And so whenever you do that, you bring in several different agencies to do a pitch, to do their best work. A smaller agency out of Detroit that didn't have a car account that I know of at, at that moment, but they did have some Ford regional work. So they were very automotive focused. But the donor people were actually the ones who came up with Zoom Zoom and it was part of the initial ad pitch for the company. And it's one of these things they did this video that was just so emotionally moving and it really captured the spirit of Mazda right then. But Zoom Zoom was originally an ad pitch. It wasn't even, you know, that's how Donor got the business, honestly, was the whole Zoom Zoom thing. And, and at that point, I was out at the region doing marketing. And I still remember just seeing the video, just going, oh, my God, this you know makes me cry. It was just <laughs> extremely well done. That was a really fun time to be part of Mazda because, you know, we had a new agency and we were really working to define who we were and where we were going. We had some challenges and I think we did a great job of turning things around and, you know, Mazda continues to be successful today, but I think part of that's left over from Zoom Zoom. Donor agency eventually got replaced with agency that's now Garage Team Mazda, obviously a great agency, but uh, Zoom Zoom has basically gone away. But that you even bring it up, it just shows how powerful that messaging was. And at the time, how appropriate it was for Mazda. It was just really special. That was one heck of a pitch, I must say. Oh, I know. Absolutely. It's like yeah, reminiscent of, of Mad Men, right? Where it's just like the one scene. That's or, the only or thing I think Alto, of. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Since we're talking sure. about Mazda and the business side, one of the things we haven't really explored yet on the show is the business side of motorsports. Many people often forget that there is more to this than just cars going around in a circle or around a road course. Can you tell us about your experiences as a driver and a team owner from the business perspective, not necessarily the racing perspective in motorsports? And I think there's a good story for Mazda within that too. If you look back the history of Mazda, and again, I've been Racing Mazdas, I guess, since uh, 1981 was the first time I raced the Mazda, Mazda RX-3. But Mazda was always very supportive of grassroots racing. Even back then, the guy was head of Mazda Motorsports. When I'd be at a race, come over, shake my hand, thank me for racing a Mazda. Uh, Damon Barnett was the gentleman's name. 
when Mazda would get big and have big factory programs, they'd end up getting too excited, spend too much money, and then cut everything off. But they always kept the grassroots program alive. And to this day, they have an outstanding grassroots program. We had a small committee within Mazda. This is pre-John Doonan. And we would, we would have meetings, and it was people that were enthusiastic about motorsports, but we had these meetings that we'd always put a fake name. It was sort of like Fight Club. First rule of these Mazda Motorsports meeting is there is no Mazda Motorsports <laughs> meeting because the grassroots program was doing well and they were staying alive. And we, you know, you almost kept your head down because they were doing fine. They were a profit center. So you don't want to touch them, but how do we get Mazda back involved with racing again? And so that eventually built into the various programs that I talked about before from pro-level racing and the old Grand Am and then into IMSA and, and all that sort of thing and early World Challenge. So the Mazda Proteges and Mazda 6s and World Challenge. But again, they were all based out of a very quiet, small group of people within Mazda as we had a little bit of success, we could talk about a little bit more and more. And I will say, though, that one of the reasons we were allowed to do what we did, especially early on, was the uh, competition parts sales were quite profitable. So Mazda set up an early program that allowed Mazda racers, and you have to produce results and things like that, but Mazda racers to get discounts on parts. So you basically get parts at a roughly dealer cost, maybe a little bit over, depending on your deal. And you also get technical support. There's guys and uh, uh, not any women yet, but hopefully there will be soon on the, on the telephone that will help you build your race car, give you advice, that sort of thing. And because of that strong grassroots support program, it made money. The executives allowed us to take the profits out of that and put them into racing. And, and you look at, you know, the, uh, the direct connection program was parts program for Dodge and Plymouth. And that program's actually back. And I think they're building some turnkey race cars now. So there are other brands that had similar things. I will say career-wise, one of the moments I'm proudest of, at least from the motorsports side, was when I got a phone call from Honda and HPD. And Honda basically said, look, when we want to do better at something, we benchmark a company and see if they'll share with us some of their learnings. You know, Honda called Mazda and said, your grassroots program's better than we are. Will you help us? Will you teach us? And again, another name I've already mentioned went to Robert Davis, who by that point was a senior vice president, said, hey, Honda called and they want to know what we know. <laughs> and, you know, can we do it? Because again, the whole Japanese philosophy of a rising tide lifting all boats is very strong. And he said, yes, give them 98% of what you know the really tough 2%, they're going to have to learn on their own. We uh, uh, had a really good relationship with Honda. I think they still do. But again, I, I left Mazda almost exactly 10 years ago, July 1 of 2012, when I left Mazda. You know, I, I, I talked to those people, but my relationship's not nearly as close. And Robert Davis isn't there anymore. And John Doonan isn't there anymore. Dean Case isn't there anymore. They have a lot of good people there that I communicate with now, but I don't have that type of relationship. But again, Again, to have a company like Honda reach out and say, hey, Mazda, you're doing a better job. I feel like I'm one of the lucky and few and fortunate people at Mazda have ever had that happen. So listeners, if you've been filling your backpack with all the names that Jim has been dropping, <laughs> it's getting full really, really quick. To, the, to that end, the motorsports world can often feel very, very small, but it's not uncommon for many of us to rub elbows with celebrities 
why don't we just take a moment here to diverge for a second and talk about some of the time you spent with McDreamy. I mean, Patrick Dempsey and others at famous places like the 24 Hours of Le Mans. I tell people all the time, and I'll say this publicly on, on this podcast, that most of the great things that I have in my life are directly attributed to Mazda and my time at Mazda. And the Dempsey thing is that way too. Racer, who I actually helped him start in his career, he lied, but his check cleared. So back when I was a team owner, he started driving our race cars and he's gone on to a great career. But a guy named Charles Espenlob, who if you're a racer, you know him. Not exactly a household name, but just really good driver, really great guy. So Charles Espenlob was working at the old Panos School. Patrick Dempsey had been to the Panos School. Charles Espenlob and Joe Foster, another great driver. Those two uh, kind of said, hey, Patrick wants to go racing. Let's see if we can figure something out. First off, is Patrick okay? You don't want to embarrass him and you don't want to embarrass us. So is Dempsey a good driver? Yeah, yeah, he's good and he's getting better. Okay. So I put together a deal because, again, I was now in the corporate marketing department, put together a deal where Patrick Dempsey did voiceover work for Mazda. And by that, we paid him with race cars, race car parts, and money, a combination. And it was the craziest contract I've ever done in my life. But it worked. and It was great. And Charles, because he had driven for my team, understood that I was pretty good at race car strategy, especially in endurance racing. What was good for them was they couldn't pay me because it would have been a conflict of interest. Can't favor one race team over another, but I love race car strategy. So again, my conflict of interest statement that I put together for Mazda every year was several pages. And one of them was explaining my relationship within motorsports because everything, like you said, it's a small family. I'm going to add incestuous family to that. So I would call strategy for Dempsey's team. I spent several years on the radio with Patrick. One of the stories I love to tell is 24 hours of Daytona, again, just fantastic race. By that point, we're running an RX-8 and Patrick's gotten pretty good. He's now very, very competitive, very quick, but he also didn't have a ton of experience, especially at the front. We're out there and I'm calling the race and all of a sudden he goes into the lead. Someone else has a problem. All of a sudden he's leading, but I'm not going to tell him he's leading because I know he'll get very excited with leading and it may or may not be what we want to happen. So basically he was in the lead for about an hour and, you know, all the TV reporters are coming up. How's it going? You know, yeah, yeah, everything's good. I call him and I go, okay, Patrick, it's going to be a full service pit stop. We're going to do fuel tire and driver change. And he goes, well, wait a second, wait a second. Do I need to wait for the wave by? And the wave by is a procedure where the lower class cars get waved by. So, you know, so you stay on the lead lap. They try to keep everybody on the same lap. And I said, Patrick, you're not getting a wave by because they don't give a wave by to the leader of the class. So you're good. You just <laughs> sit there. You just, you've been doing great. I, the rea- he was like screaming over the radio and it was, uh, it was just very fun. It's a race we almost won. We ended up third we had a technical issue and lost a few laps but came back and finished third and so that was Patrick's uh, first podium in IMSA or well it was Grand Am at the time Grand Am IMSA we'll use them a little interchangeably we had a strong enough relationship when they decided to do a documentary which is on Amazon since Amazon Web Services is a great partner of the SRO make sure to rush over to Amazon and look for Patrick Dempsey racing Lamont and we did a great documentary 
And that was Patrick's journey to Le Mans. And that's where I ended up in the box. They switched to Porsche for the whole World Endurance Championship. So they had a German engineer. Patrick Dempsey couldn't understand them. His accent was strong and Patrick couldn't understand them. So they decided to bring me in. So I spent two years in the box at Le Mans, just basically taking uh, German engineers and translating it in a way that Patrick could understand and do. And that whole experience of Le Mans, it's in the documentary. Again, just a wonderful time. I will say it was better when we finally got on the podium several years later. But the documentary, what I admire is how honest it is. There were certainly moments of it where we all looked bad. Patrick just allowed that to happen. He wanted to be an honest portrayal of what it's like in racing and trying to get sponsors. You're trying to put together deals. You end up with uh, interesting characters. Uh, I, I heard one interesting character was edited out of it, but that's a story for another day. So Patrick and I are still friends today. I had lunch with him last week. He is starting to think about getting back into racing again. So we'll see. We're trying to make it happen. So there was a lot there, but I th- we love Patrick Dempsey around here. I think he's a great guy. You know, I've been he following his, guy. you know, following his uh, career a little bit. You know, watching the Le Mans races, always rooting for him and his teams and everything. That, what he meant to say was watching Grey's Anatomy. That's what he. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a story there too. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to invoke my Fifth Amendment rights. <laughs> <laughs> But diving into that a little bit, I think you mentioned calling race strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is, what that means, you know, the role that you played in calling race strategy for Patrick Dempsey and the, the various races that you were involved in? With race strategy, you obviously want to have the fastest driver in at the correct time. And, and honestly, you're just trying to stagger drivers, stagger pit stops in such a way to give the team the best opportunity to win. What I say when you're calling race strategy, you're just running thousands of what if scenarios in your head. Like, what if the track goes yellow now? What do we do? You're paying attention to how much fuel the car is using, what lap times are, because you're trying to check for tire degradation. Really, as race strategists, you're just running what if strategy after what if strategy. So that's on the more engineering side. The other thing you're doing is you're being a psychologist. Because you're talking to the driver, you're his communication piece. And so depending on the driver, some of them want lots of information. Some of them don't want to be talked to whatsoever, but it's my job to make sure when something's important to give them that information. You're part engineer, part psychologist. You just try to give the team the best chance of winning. I see a lot of like talking about internally being a psychologist and giving information to your driver. How much of what you do in calling race strategy is predicated on what your opponents are doing? Like how much are you looking at what the other guys are doing and how much are you thinking psychologically? Okay. Like a chess match. If I move my pawn, they're going to move their rook or they, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's very true. And the analogy of a chess game is just dead on you're playing chess and obviously you're trying to do everything possible to uh, put yourself in the best position and when possible, put people in the bad position. I will say that great 24 that we led for so long that we were just talking about. What I liked was, you know, Patrick's an extremely likable guy. The whole team, I think we were pretty likable. It came down to uh, us and another car just battling for the lead While there's certainly no villains in the paddock, let's just say we were a much more light team than the team we were battling. 
And I still remember it's probably 2 a.m. And we're slow. We had a car that was three quarters of a second per lap slower than the Porsche we were battling with. But by strategy, by timing pit stops, by just doing a little bit out of the ordinary stuff sometimes, I managed to keep the Porsche lapped down basically all night long. We're not as fast as a Porsche strategy and some luck got us into the lead. But I still remember Will Turner, who's just a great BMW team owner, coming to the pits at 2 a.m. and just saying, you just keep doing what you're doing. You keep that guy a lap down. Because again, just our, the personality of our team, Patrick and everybody else was, you know, they, they were all cheering for us and they were probably almost as heartbroken as we were when we had the technical issues. And, but again, we fought back and finished on the podium. So uh, very proud of that, but, but you're right. It, you hear it once in a while in some of the NASCAR races, if you're not fast enough, you can't do what everybody else does because you're going to lose. You're just looking uh, to be opportunistic and whether that means not stopping when everyone else does. If you're the last car on the lead lap and you get a full course yellow, you always stop for fuel because that's going to give you a much longer window. You know, you fight for track position. You know, the other thing about race strategy is you basically you're calling the race backwards. Uh, and what that means is, you know, when the race is going to end, it's all timing and you have a rough idea of laps, but yellow flags, the stuff I did was all timing. And so you're racing to that final stop and you're trying to time the final stop such a way that you get an advantage but you run the race backward everything at the start of the race is aimed to get yourself hopefully into the lead for that final stop and when you make that final stop you're putting pressure like you said on everybody else if they're watching what you're doing and you've done some stuff so you're in a position where you only have to make one stop and they have to make two it's fun to watch their horror uh, when you realize that how many times during your experience in races and everything, have you had to call an audible or you've had a game book, you've got your plan and you just take it and you toss it right out the window because something has happened either to another team or to you. And tell us some experience that you had like that. Every race, there's not a single race that goes <laughs> to plan. So again, that's why the what if strategy, you know, you know, in essence, the car will go, say go 55 minutes on a load of fuel when we were running the Michelins and Michelins, you could generally double stint them. So that was great. You know, you're watching the weather report. You're watching the temperature. You have a plan, not a super detailed plan, but a basic plan of how it's going to go. And every race within three laps that goes out the window. So, so then you're just adapting. You know, you get hit on the start, get a tire puncture. Your main competitor blows a motor and that just changes your strategy. I work for other teams also. And CJ Wilson, who is a baseball player, owns a Porsche dealership up in Fresno. Great guy. He had a young team and he's trying to make a name for himself. And so I would always ask the team owner, what are you trying to accomplish? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones paying the bills. So they may have a different agenda, you know, and he said, I want TV time. Okay, I'm going to do everything in the strategy to get you as much TV time as possible. So we're like 10 minutes ago in the race. It was full of yellow flags. At one point, we led overall, we were in a smaller class because, you know, I was going to keep the car in front of the class as long as I could. But there was so much yellow flags, I basically could have gone the whole race without stopping for fuel, which is, of course, against the rules. So with about 10 minutes to go in the race, I just have a couple of IMSA officials just standing there giving me the evil eye, like, when the hell are you going to pit? And I knew as soon as we pitted, we threw the race away. 
But again, <laughs> CJ told me he wanted TV time. And you watch the race on TV. They kept talking about <laughs> this car and kept showing the car. I got him so much TV time. Another example that was early in Patrick's career, Joe Foster was a great coach for Patrick, did a really good job of bringing Patrick along. And so again, what's our objective, Joe? And he says, let's get Patrick out in front. And let's let him have pressure of leading a race for the first time. And so we're New Jersey Motorsports Park. Again, with yellow flags and how you pit, not pit, you can make things happen. First thing, a yellow flags, it was far enough in the race that most people pitted. And I left Patrick out. So all of a sudden, Patrick's leading the race. And he was under intense pressure from a bunch of drivers. But he, he held firm. And it took, you know, it was, uh, I can't remember the driver, but someone you've heard of spent like four laps just trying to get by him into the lead. And we're sort of thinking, well, I hope he gets by him because he's going to lose patience really quick. That gave Patrick the experience he needed to uh, be successful at Le Mans. So so I hate to say in my career as a strategist, hasn't been always about winning the race, been a lot of strategies trying to accomplish something different, whether it's driver development long-term, you know, or team development long-term. If you want publicity, I can get you publicity. And I'll still remember a guy named Jay Schaefer. Now we're back to my own team. We were lucky enough to be sponsored by the late, great Circuit City. They sponsored our Car and World Challenge, and we had a Mazda protege we were running. And Jay Schaefer's advice before the start of a race is, well, if you can't win, crash, so at least I get lots of coverage. And so we didn't crash on purpose, but let's just say if we weren't having a good day, we'd try to do something exciting that we knew we'd get a little bit of time for Circuit City. At a NASCAR level, of course, it's all about just winning. But at the level I was, uh, I was racing at, it's a little bit of uh, trying to accomplish other goals. I'm, I'm assuming you, you're familiar with F1 and you watch F1 racing or whatever. Yeah. So this yeah. question is really simple. Christian Horner or Toto Wolff? Oh, <laughs> I would probably do Christian Horner only because he has a lot more experience of not being the fastest car. Early in Patrick's career, before he got fast, I, I had a lot of experience in getting laps back. You know, I used to joke that was my specialty was how are we going to get laps back? By the time Patrick got fast, that was never an issue. But early in everyone's career against that level, that just happened. So Horner, you know, the Red Bull team's obviously very good, but it normally doesn't have quite the pace in the Mercedes. And he had to just enjoy so much earlier this year when they lacked Lewis Hamilton. That just, yeah. you know, again. So I'm going to just say Horner because of that. I know Eric's rolling his eyes because he's a huge F1 fan. <laughs> <laughs> My time has passed for F1. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I think I'd probably be embarrassed to share my racing strategy with Jim. Although listening to his upbringing in motorsports world, he might approve of it. It's very simple. Step one, check for loose nuts behind the wheel and on the car. <laughs> step two yep. is pray. And step three yep. is if all else fails, drive flat out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's good. And to be honest, you in a few words basically said what took me half an hour now to talk about. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, your philosophy's dead on, dead on. Well, with that said, we should probably get back to talking about your involvement with SRO, talking about the, the present and the future. So you're now in charge of the touring car portion of the program. Yes. So when yes. I had Greg Gill on, I asked him to please define what exactly a touring car is in 2022. Would you care to share with our audience sure. what exactly that means? Sure. 
And I'm just going to say up front, there is a little asterisk. But fortunately, right this very second, there is no asterisk. Basically, how I define touring car is a sedan or coupe comes from the factory with a back seat that, you know, we go out and we do sprint racing with. In the SRO world, we obviously came out of the world of exotic cars. So, you know, the, the top GT3 class cars are Ferraris and Lamborghinis and those sort of things. And then the GT4 class, which is the fantastic class in the SRO world, it's kind of in between because you've got some McLarens and you've got some Porsches, some Audi R8s and Mercedes Benzes, but you also theoretically have Mustangs and Camaros. So it's kind of a nice tweener class. And then the touring cars, again, the cars have back seats for the most part. No asterisk needed right now. The cars come with a back seat, sometimes four doors, sometimes two doors, sometimes three doors. They're basically every person's car. So you look at the brands that are racing in TC America, BMW and Honda are the two biggest ones in terms of numbers, but we have many very successful uh, Mazda that will show up now and then and, and is showing some really good potential. Hyundai is a great supporter of the class. For the most part, come from factory built. Brian Herter Racing will build you a Hyundai Elantra N for our series. They send out tech support. And it's a turnkey race car. So same thing, Honda HPD will happily sell you either a, a TC level Civic Type R or a TCA level. They have their new Honda four-door Civic, which just came out. And so these are the cars that everybody drives on the street. You fell asleep when you were younger with pictures of Lamborghinis and Ferraris on the wall, but mom or dad took you in the carpool in a Honda or Toyota or a, or a Mazda. And so those are the cars that race in touring car racing. Now, touring car in Europe is slightly different. BTCC, the STCC, and even the touring car stuff that happens in Italy and France, you see a the lot TCR more stuff. You so. see a lot more hot hatches, right? With names like Citroën yep. and Renault and Volkswagen yep. And, yep. and Skoda yep. and Seat and things like that. So yep. same, same, but different. There's more cars available in Europe than there is here in those types of classes. British touring cars are really cool series. I will say though, it's a spec series. I mean, they're all now basically using the same engine. There might be a few little variations, but it's a spec series. You know, the BOP is very easy because you're all running basically the same powertrain. It makes it easy. Uh, TCR is a very cool series. We actually tried it. The problem with TCR is the cars are relatively expensive to run. And for us, you start looking at what a TCR costs versus a GT4 car. And since uh, the SRO owns GT4 worldwide, we create the class and we own it. And TCR, we have to pay licensing fees on. It just became apparent that as soon as the price point of TCR gets on top of GT4, and it almost is, it just didn't make any sense for us. So we let our license from TCR laps. And again, I love TCR cars. They are badass, really cool cars. But we saw that our place in the world is entry level. So I call our TCA class the gateway drug. If you're someone that wants to go pro racing, you can go to Mini, you can go to Honda, you can go to Hyundai, you can uh, get a, one of the new Subaru BRZs, you can get one of those cars, you buy the car, it's fully ready to go, ready, race ready, and you go racing and you have all the, the cars well engineered, you have the tech support you need, and you go racing. Again, it's a relatively affordable way to go. Most parts you'll ever need are at the racetrack with the, the brands doing it. 
you know, Hyundai and Honda both have engineering people on staff that come to all the races and do it. And everything's relative. So TCA is it's a relatively cheap way to go. And then we have people that work their way up through TCA to TC and TCX. And, you know, I look at the GT4 field and now in the GT3 field, you have someone like Samantha Tan, an outstanding young woman racer. When I started at my job with the SRO, she was racing a Kia in TCA. And then she moved her way up to GT4 in a BMW. And now this year she's running a GT3 BMW. She's running that both with us plus some of the international series. That's not uncommon to see someone when they're starting their career run our TC. We teach them what it's like to be a professional racer because we're FIA sanctioned. The license that we have and the races that we do allow them to build a resume with the FIA so they could race anywhere in the world. It's a good place to be. And, and, and one thing I'm proud of, you talked about all the cars in Europe. So what's happened in the SRO world, again, Stefan Rattel, who's the SR of the SRO, saw what we were doing in the US with TC America. A couple of people worked for them said, hey, let's bring that concept to Europe, to France. Last year for the first year, there was TC France. And so TC France is very similar Although I will say that there are advantages and disadvantages in Europe. There's so many manufacturers that have had one make series, like every manufacturer has a one make series. And so then what happens is those make series, they decide to do away with them. So all of a sudden these people have cars and no place to run. So what TC France has done is they've taken those cars, they BOP'd them to basically a TCA level and at TC level, they've done BOP. So all those cars, those Renault Twins or, you know, Seats and whatever those cars are, we've given them a place to run. And so first year, they average a little bit over 20 cars a race and it's great racing. And it was at the front. It was, I think it was a real fast Renault kind of semi TCR type car versus a BMW M2, similar to what we did, and it was just great racing. So that's just kind of something I'm proud of is they've taken TC America to the world. And so we're in France now. There are some inquiries about other things. Our level of TC is just a lot less expensive, TCR. So Jim, it's actually really great that you brought up all the other SRO series that are available, especially in Europe. And I'd like to remind our audience that if you're interested in learning more about those, obviously check out the SRO-motorsports.com website. There's also some great YouTube feeds and things like that. But I happen to catch most of those races on motorsport.tv. And so that's how I stay plugged in with TC France and all those races. And they're awesome. You can watch, you know, Renault Clio's running around Zolder in Belgium. It's fantastic. You're not going to get that on ESPN 8, the Ocho or whatever, you know, whatever the latest you know, <laughs> subscription is that we need to have. But Motorsport TV, if you want to learn more about Touring Car and see how it's done around the globe, because there's even Asia series and things like that, you can check it out there. I feel like TCA, that lower class in touring car, might be the stepping stone for somebody that's coming out of, let's say, Spec Miata or Spec E36 or something like that and want to move on to something else. Would that be a great avenue into the SRO program for somebody that's used to running a BMW, a Boxster, a Miata, something like that? Yes, definitely. If you could run up front in something like a Spec Miata, a little bit to the boxer, but I'm just going to use Spec Miata because there's so many of them. If you could run up front in Spec Miata, you could climb into one of our TCA cars. You'll be in the top five pretty quickly just because all the skill sets that you learn 
in the lower club racing classes are all applicable to what you see on the pro level. I will say though, if you think you're going to come in and, and be on the podium the first race, no, it's much tougher than people think it is. The level of competition is much tougher. When I owned my own race team back in the day, we would jokingly call these people the uh, local heroes, local champions. They've won every race at the track in a similar car. So they just think that they're going to get, you know, just kill everybody. And, you know, they don't know me from Adam and you know, I'm not a Mr. The epitome of health or anything. So, you know, even at that point, I probably was carrying 20 pounds too many. And without fail, we'd smoke them just because, you know, you rise to the level of your competition. In the TC America class, we have some of the best turn car racers out there. But even someone like Kevin Bohm, who's leading the TC class right now, Kevin was a multi-time SCCA national champion. And he came in and it took him half a season to get to the pointy end of our series. And again, these are people that aren't household names to anybody except other competitors in that field. But you certainly learn great racecraft. Someone whose career I really enjoyed watching is Sally McNulty. Sally McNulty came in from the time attack world. And she was very fast in time attack, uh, had you know one of these 600 horsepower Subarus and would go out there and just run really fast. She came in and her first race, I remember watching her at Circuit of the Americas and going, oh my God, oh my God, because she was, she went from a 600 horsepower car to a 200 horsepower car, takes a lot more finesse and I'm not going to say skill, but the carry momentum through turns, it's a different skill set. So, but now I look at Sally, she's going to be on the podium this year. She's going to be fighting for wins. I think she'll be fighting for the championship all year. But it's taken her three years. This is her third kind of full-time season with us. And so, again, it's a great place to start again. There are lots of people that have moved up and great place to start. So many of the GT4 top teams came out of TC America. And I got to add my little jab in here. I think the great equalizer is all these folks that have to come over and suddenly relearn how to drive because now they're in front wheel drive cars. Not that there aren't real wheel drive cars in touring car, but it is an entirely different animal when you get behind the wheel of a front wheel drive and they are asked to go fast. I I just got to say it. But that does lead us into kind of a sideways segue into a topic that I talked to Greg about on his episode, which was balance of power. How do you level the playing field? These folks coming out of different other branches of local motorsport into touring car and suddenly are behind the wheel of a Hyundai, a Honda, a Volkswagen or something else and go, how is this fair? How does this work? I want to get your take on BOP, on the balance of power, balance of performance, blame other people. I've heard a million different ways to just dissect this acronym. Get your feeling on that and what it means in the touring car arena. Yeah, so balance performance, as I call it, is very much misunderstood. What it really does is it gives every car an opportunity at one race or another to win. And the whole point of BOP is, as I say, the last race of the last lap, we want the best teams with the best drivers to be fighting for the win no matter what car they're in. Whether you have a Honda, whether you have a Hyundai, whether you have a Mini, whether you have a Subaru in TCA, whether you have a Honda, a Hyundai, a Mazda in TC, BMW in TC, they're going to change the weight of the car. They change ride height. They change horsepower level because 
you know, I used to hate turbo cars. As someone who competed against turbo cars, I used to hate them. Now I love turbo cars because with the turbo car, we can give them whatever horsepower we want. It's like Honda, HPD, they've done a great job. We have five different horsepower settings and we could say, okay, for this track, you need to use setting number two. And that's because we know where the Honda's fast. We know where it's not fast. We know where its strengths are. It's the same thing with the Hyundais. It's the same thing with Mini. It's a balance of how much horsepower we give them versus weight versus ride height. So the, the potential, lifetime potential per car ends up being very, very close. It's all data-driven. I would like to say that Mr. Wizard goes in and finds the right settings, but it's data-driven. We know how each car accelerates. I talked about min speed earlier, so we know uh, what the cornering speed is, depending on the type of corner for every car. We play with factors that affect all those, horsepower, ride height and weight are the three biggest things. We just vary those to make sure that no car has too much of an advantage or too much of a disadvantage at at every race. Talked about front wheel drive. The challenge that we had previously was we always had to make front wheel drive cars a little faster than the rear wheel drive cars, because as the race went on, the front wheel drive cars would use up the tires. And so then it became Okay, if we don't have any yellow flags, you know, last five laps, they'll be perfect because the rear wheel drive car will be a little faster, but it's got to get around the front wheel drive car. What's happened though is Pirelli's developed such a great tire now that that's sort of gone out the window. Uh, The degradation that we see is much less than it used to be. So now it's actually made Joe Legan, who's uh, the guy that does BOP for us here in uh, TC America, has made his job a little bit easier because he doesn't have to try to extrapolate how many yellow flags we're going to have and that sort of thing to add another crazy element to BOP. People and racers always think that I'm going to get the best car. And that, I mean, I did the same thing when I was a younger racer. I will say for the most part, that doesn't exist anymore. The best car is who's got the best support in the paddock, who has the best contingency program, because our job as an organization is to make sure every car has an opportunity to win. So isn't that where we see the convergence of the business side of this equation kind of overriding the technological engineering side of it? You talked earlier about Formula One in the heyday, and I look at the heyday of Formula One as the pre-V10 era, where they all became basically the same car at that point. And I mentioned this to Greg when we spoke, you know, you had the six-wheeled Tyrrells and the chaparrals with the fans underneath and all this crazy stuff where folks like Lotus were pushing the boundaries of engineering because they were breaking rules that didn't exist. And then suddenly rules were written to to stop them from doing things. That's the charm. That's the allure. That's the mystique behind racing is what new crazy thing are we going to come up with next? And that trickles down to our road cars. So when I look at balance of power, it makes for great television, but it doesn't make for great racing or does it? Well, I think it makes for great racing because you have a variety of cars going, you know, nose to nose. And I also think it highlights the driver. Everything you're talking about highlights the engineer. So if you're someone who likes absolute cutting edge engineering, then the current Formula One is where it's at. And, and, you know, I would say the craziest that I was experienced was a WEC in about 2015 Mm -hmm. uh, when it was Porsche versus Audi. Toyota was just starting to come in and those cars were insane with the technology. But what happens is, you know, technology costs a lot of money. And our whole 
focus for us is customer racing. So we want it to be attainable, affordable, reliable, and we'll give up some engineering in order to make it more accessible and easier to drive. That's one of the challenges uh, that we're working our way through with GT3, but a GT3 car is very technological. Uh, So for a lot of drivers, if you didn't grow up with a ground effects car, car with a lot of aero, it becomes hard to drive because the faster you go, the higher the cornering speed because you have more downforce, you can go around, pull more Gs in the corners. That doesn't apply to TC America because we do have some aerodynamics, but it's much, much less. Our cars become much more accessible to drive where a GT3 car, the pros love it because it's easy. It's taken a while for the uh, the pro-am drivers who have jobs outside of motorsports to figure it out. And, and they do. The best ones do. But I think that's why GT4 is also so popular because the GT4 cars are much less aero-dependent. So I don't think I'm going to give you an answer that's going to satisfy you because, uh, again, I, I love the technology that I saw the Porsche prototype car 2015 was just one of the most amazing cars I've ever seen, but it got too expensive. And again, it was unsustainable. And we're all about sustainable racing. We're all about putting a race show together where as many people as possible can participate. And it's just enjoyable for everybody. And there's a reason Porsche and Audi are no longer running in WEC right now, probably because it was getting too expensive, especially to be at the front. Yeah. And even the the new cars that are coming out, because we're going to start seeing some of the um, the hybrid systems back. But even the, the hybrid system is a one size fits all system. So whether it's Porsche or whether it's a Peugeot, it's the same hybrid system. So it's not like in those crazy days when Audi was uh, racing so hard against Porsche, where they had completely different systems and different fuels. You had Audi diesels running against Porsche with tiny gasoline motors, boosted the heck out of them with crazy hybrid systems. That's all really fun until the bills all come due. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone in uh, Germany had to justify how much money they were spending. It's just not sustainable. Our whole business model is based upon sustainability, It means close competitive racing. It means the manufacturers understanding that they're going to have a fair fight, that we're going to make sure that they have an opportunity to win. And the manufacturers compete on customer support and customer service as much as they compete on everything on the racetrack. It's a completely different business model than I grew up on. It's a much different business model than when I was at Mazda. I will say, though, that everything I learned about customer racing at Mazda is applicable today. It's just, it's at a higher level than it was then. Although I will say our, our RX-8 program is pretty prototypical to what we're now doing in the SRO world, where you had customer cars all racing out there, all helping each other. So it's a good business model, but it's not quite as sexy as six-wheel Tyrrells, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think there's anything sexy about a six-wheel Tyrrell. <laughs> uh, we can agree on that. That's for sure. We may never agree on balance or performance, but we can agree on that. <laughs> To bring the conversation back to, you know, the, the TC class and the, the small cars, we often joke on our drive through about small cars, like, for example, the Chevy Spark, which, you know, a spoiler alert is finally on its way out. I mean, we hear brake fix are fans of small cars, especially front wheel drive, but we've asked many of our guests and uh, other drivers 
during our pit stop uh, portion of the, the episodes, would you drive one? And the answer is generally a flat out resounding no, followed by an awkward pause. And then, but if it was B-spec, I would. And you had some involvement in B-spec racing. Would you care to expand on that and talk about what you hoped the series would yeah. be? Yeah, absolutely. So back in the day, Maz was contacted by Honda about our grassroots program. Between the two companies, we were looking for a program that we can kind of do together. And so at that point, the Mazda 2 was coming out. The Honda Fit had just come out. In the automotive world, that's the B segment. So the guys from HPD and the guys from Mazda sat down, hey, why don't we try to put together uh, kits for these B segment cars and let's go race them and let's invite anybody who's got a B segment car to come and join us and we'll all see if we put the series together. So that's what we did. And we, uh, Mazda and Honda debuted it at the NASA 25 hour, these uh, Mazda 2 versus Honda Fit. No BOP had been done at that point, but we just wanted to do it. And I still remember Simon Paginot sneaking into the Honda Fit and just embarrassing everybody because <laughs> you think you're really good till someone like Simon Paginot gets into a, a Honda Fit and he was so much faster than anybody else. Always love Paginot because of just that he's willing to get to a B-spec car. But we ended up getting a bunch of manufacturers who were all interested. We did a BOP test at Grattan outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the manufacturers were all totally transparent. And we all just said, okay, this is it, blah, blah, blah. And we created B-spec. We were just so excited about the class and ran a little bit of pro racing. World Challenge had it when I started TCB. We just loved the concept. Cheap, entry level, that whole thing. But it just kind of sat there. It wasn't really widely accepted up until maybe four years ago. And all of a sudden, people rediscovered. Plus, the cars had gotten cheap by this point. You buy a, uh, you know, now a seven or eight-year-old Mazda 2 or Honda Fit, and all of a sudden, the cars are cheap. Or, you know, it was a Ford Focus, and uh, the Minis came in. And so you could buy the cars pretty cheap. And they are so fun to race because... At that point, they were factory engineered chassis. You know, the, the suspension was all done by real engineers. We get back and they're not quite six-year-old T-rolls, but they were real engineers. <laughs> uh, made sure that these cars had the ultimate performance for what they had. And they are just an absolute blast to drive. So the B-Spec class honestly was created by the guys at HPD and the guys at Mazda Motorsports looking for a way to work together for the better of motorsports. And uh, we create B-Spec. So at the runoffs, I think they had like 60-something SCCA runoffs last year. They had so many. And again, uh, John Doonan and I are texting each other. Well, it took a little while, but it was a good idea after all, because it's like any good idea. Sometimes you question. And a lot of my good ideas have turned out to be not good ideas. But that one, it took a little while, but it, it turned into quite a success. And it's really fun to watch those guys. And I was actually looking at some SCCA data a few days ago, and I B-spec, right? The second, the fourth or fifth biggest class in SCCA. So it just shows that a fun, affordable car always will find a market eventually. Amen to that. So Jim, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the future of touring car racing within SRO. What are some of your thoughts and your plans going forward? Right this very second, TC and TCA are both healthy classes. Brands are introducing second or third generation cars built to the SRO rule set. 
So the challenge I have right now is building a new class, and that's the TCX class. The, the BMW M2, any BMW M anything, is the ultimate sedan if it's in that class of car. So we built TCX to be a place where brands that compete against the BMW M2 in the showroom give them an opportunity to compete versus uh, BMW M2 on the racetrack. So TCX, we're trying to build the ultimate touring car championship. And so far, BMWs just had the race all to themselves. We have a big 9, 10, 11, 12 car that looks like a spec class. Although I will say, because I come from the retail automotive world, being a district sales manager, I look at cross-sale reports like crazy to determine who my customers are looking at and how to compete against that brand, that car. So to me, the BMW M2 is a benchmark for every single sports sedan. So let's get uh, the best from Acura, Lexus, Mercedes, Cadillac, any of those cars should be competing versus the M2 in TCX. I think I have one brand that's extremely close. Hopefully by the time this airs, there'll be a second brand. That's my challenge is to make it the ultimate touring car class where the best sports sedans in motorsports are the same best sports sedans competing in the showroom. Because that just gives better justification for manufacturers to build great cars for our customers to race. So, Jim, any other shout outs, promotions or things that you'd like to tell our audience that we didn't cover in this episode so far? Really excited for a new program uh, that Toyota just announced as part of SRO. Toyota has announced that they're going to run in 2023 the GR Cup. And what the GR Cup initially is, and I'm not I'm saying initially, I can't give you what it may even look like down the road that'll be up to toyota to talk about but the gr cup it's a single make series it's going to run on sro weekends it's all going to be for the first period of time gr86s they're developed and built by trd so trd builds the cars services the cars sells the cars and they're going to be doing sprint racing within the sro race weekends next year so 2023 really excited and for me personally I spent a good part of my life, I haven't talked about it much, but the Mazda Road to Indy, the Mazda Motorsports Ladders were programs put together that I was a big part of where we gave opportunities to young racers. And so when Toyota contacted us a year ago about what they wanted to do, I was so wanting it. I wanted the program so badly. Obviously, there's other groups that wanted the program too, but from my perspective, it's a program that lets me take everything I've learned in my career and put it into a great series. The whole focus is giving young drivers a place to race. Toyota's putting good prize money in. Every aspect of TRD is involved in this. So the, the, the people that are involved in recruiting and finding the next talent, Jack Irving, this is their baby and that they've trusted us at the SRO to help them manage this. Just a huge program for us and just really excited to be a part of it. And again, I feel like uh, my whole life has led up to uh, creating another series. I did create the Mazda MX-5 Cup back in the day. That was my project. Helped Mazda take over the Atlantic Series back in the day where we took it over from Toyota. Uh, Again, Dean and John Dunan and I were all working really hard together on both the motorsports ladders. So, so now a new chapter with Toyota 
I'm just so excited for the new program. You know, the information's coming out in little spurts. So uh, either come to the SRO website or go to TRD website. We'll have a ton of information on buying the cars. If this is the first time you heard of it, I would be contacting Mike at TRD immediately because uh, the biggest problems, I think there's going to be a bigger demand for these cars uh, than availability. So uh, if this interests you, then reach out to the guys at TRD immediately, go over to the TRD website, get your deposit in on one of them. It's going to be a great series. It's been fun working with Toyota and the TRD people because they figured out who the SRO is their involvement with IMSA and NASCAR. They understood those programs really, really well, but they really didn't really know about the SRO. When the Super came out and was successful in GT4 and they sold a bunch of cars over in the SRO, they all of a sudden got excited about it. And that led us to the position now where we were selected to help them with their uh, GR program. This is who uh, the SRO is. These are the opportunities. But, you know, IMSA is a fantastic place to race. For many people, IMSA is better than we are, just depending on what your objectives are. We've carved out a really nice spot for us in the motorsports world, a growing spot. The same can be said about WEC and IMSA too, even though there's a weird marriage going on there too. If you're an IMSA, people go, well, WEC is better than IMSA. So, but they're all stepping yeah. stones. It depends on yeah. where you want to go as a driver, right? At the end of the day. So yeah. I think, I think yeah. some of that stuff is irrelevant. If you're a fan of GT and prototype racing, all three of the series combined make sense because that's yep. where all the action is, right? There's nothing else like multi-class racing. I'm disillusioned with Formula One. I'm still a diehard WRC fan, but I'm like the only person, right. I think in the right. DMV that's a rally fan. So whatever, I'll leave it where it is. At least in our organization, I know I'm the only one. But when it comes down to it, I've personally converted a lot of people that were either NASCAR fans, IndyCar fans, or Formula One fans. I'm like, you need to come check out GT Racing. And they see their first Rolex or whatever it is. And they're like, I didn't know this was a thing. And I'm like, you didn't know this was a thing. It's been around for like 60 years. Where have you been? (laughs) Well, it's enthusiasm from you and people like you and these podcasts that will educate the fans. Absolutely. I think all of motorsports right now is really seeing surprising growth. I mean, I look at the uh, number of spectators that IMSA has been getting, a number of spectators in our events so far this year has been significantly higher. You know, you always wish you had the magic button for why it's gotten so much better. Yeah, you know what I attribute it to? It's two things. It's one is accessibility which you cannot get anywhere else anymore, unless you're going to like World of Outlaws or something like that. You can't get in the paddock. You can't meet drivers. You can't get close to the cars and anything else but GT or prototype racing. It's just, it is what it is. One of my favorite stories since I took over this job was in our paddock at Road America. There was just a family looking at the TC cars as they were lining up, ready to go. And a mom is saying to her daughter, look, they're racing our car. You know, they drove to the track in a Honda Civic and there was a Honda Civic ready to go on the racetrack. And just to see 
probably a five-year-old young girl's eyes just wide open. That's mommy's car that's racing. Yeah, And so it's accessibility at both levels. It's it's accessibility that the paddocks are wide open, that you could talk to drivers, talk to teams, talk to mechanics. But it's also the accessibility, especially in TC America, of course, (laughs) that we're racing the cars that everybody drives. So I say in our paddock, you have the dream cars that everyone always dreamed of driving, the Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Porsches. But you also have the cars that everyone drives, the Hyundai, the Mazda, the Honda. And I think the second part of it, well, let's put cost and all that kind of stuff aside. You said it best. It's the circus part. It's that spectacle of racing that you go to an F1 race and there's like this Olympic village that they create, right? And you're like, eh, but everything's super pricey and out of reach. And, you know, you're like, okay, well, I'll it's buy the bougie. new... It's bougie. Yeah, I guess I'll buy the new Leclerc Polo, but it's like $900. You're like, you don't want to do that. It's harder to be a fan of a driver in GT racing because you're not sure. Is it Rob Holland? Is it Andy Pilgrim? Is it this? Is it that? Who is it? But you go Ferrari, Mini, BMW, Porsche. You can associate with that, right? Again, that accessibility. But there's still that spectacle. You've been to Petit Le Mans. You've been to Salem. There's always that village. There's the games. There's that whole family feel to it that doesn't exist at an F1 race or a NASCAR race anymore. When you look at who did it right, I think everybody's still trying to emulate IMSA because they've got the formula down. They're able to repeat it everywhere they go. And I thought it was really telling Matt Martelli, he runs the Mint 400, which was originally the oldest off-road race in the US, older than Baja, all that kind of stuff. So they took that over. When I met with him, he greets me and he's like, so what do you think? I'm like, wow, this is the only other race I've been to that feels super familiar. And And he's like, and? And I'm like, I feel like I'm at an IMSA race. And he goes, we did that on purpose. What? And he goes, yeah, we copied a lot of what they do because we see that the type of pull they have and the audience that they built. And so when you go to the mid 400, these off-road races, you're like, this is eerily familiar, right? And I think you guys are working towards that. But as that builds out, I think SRO will become more of a household name. And I will say the crazy thing as an organization right now is uh, Valentino Rossi's running our, our world challenge in Europe. And that's taken a whole new level of engagement. And I know IMSA wanted him bad. So, and again, Dunin's a good friend, but that Rossi's running with us and that we're running the GR series. I'm very, you know, I'm competitive too. So nice. love you, John, but, but I'm very happy that we have Rossi in the GR series. So we're, we're happy you have Rossi too. This season, we'll see more than 100 races run under the SRO Motorsports Group banner, and you can follow all the racing action by visiting www.sro-motorsports.com or taking a shortcut to gtamerica.us. Be sure to follow them on social media at gt underscore America on Twitter and Instagram, at SROGTAmerica on Facebook, and at GT World on YouTube. If you have questions about Touring Car, what it's about, how to get involved, or drive in the series, be sure to reach out to Jim at jim.jordan at sro-motorsports.com. And remember, all of this information will be posted alongside this episode in our follow-on article on gtmotorsports.org. Well, Jim, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and telling us about your corner of the motorsports world. And we wish you the best of luck as you continue to grow out the TC America program under the SRO Motorsports banner. 
Also, we will be seeing you on site this year at several of the SRO races. So for our audience out there, look for more from us and from Jim Jordan as we visit with him at these SRO events. And if you want to come and check them out as well, be sure to check out the calendar on SRO Motorsports. Thank you. Had an absolute pleasure. Great time. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. The following episode is brought to you by SRO Motorsports America and their partners at AWS, CrowdStrike, Fanatec, Pirelli, and the Skip Barber Racing School. Be sure to follow all the racing action by visiting www.sro-motorsports.com or take a shortcut to gtamerica.us. And be sure to follow them on social at GT underscore America on Twitter and Instagram at SRO GT America on Facebook and catch live coverage of the races on their YouTube channel at GT World. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember... Without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.